Welcome to a Movie Mumble special episode. Special episode. And this special episode... Special. <laughs> <laughs> what did I say? Before we started, I said I was going to say it a lot. And then you all missed the second one. Anyway, oh, take two. this particular <laughs> episode... Particular. Damn it. <laughs> oh, man. Surrounded. We are, we are off to a great start already. Surrounded. surrounded. By cackling idiots, uh, cackling idiots, chuckle fucks, which is a good good place to be, actually. Wait, did you pause it? Or is it recording? No, it's it? it's going. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> I um, did overloaded. Sorry. Anyway, this particular movie mumble. Particular. Is, movie I did not mumble. use the word episode. Is, episode is in fact a very special episode. Special episode because it's our first. Should I say theatrical feature where we all went and saw a film in the theater? Oh, that's true. And then yeah. recorded. This is uh, the next day, the day after. Yeah. Uh, the film we saw is The Disaster Artist. This is our second podcast for The Room, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We did a special episode. Special <laughs> episode. Earlier. You know, I was going to just keep talking, and then Tim moved, and I was like, yes. He had it. He had it. Yeah. Anyway, yes. uh, this is our second special episode special episode for the room because of the disaster artist hearing about the disaster artist is what spurred us to watch the room in the first place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we watched it we did a podcast about that hopefully you've listened to it already then the disaster artist came out and we watched it and now here we are podcasting about it Woo-hoo. yeah um we were talking the other night we were very happy that we saw the room first yeah for sure and um for those of you who may have found this and don't know what movie mumble is Go find a regular episode, I'll say. Uh, but Scott's not going to read out our... Not, not the full <laughs> intro, but basically we all watch a movie and then talk about it, and that's it. Just three friends. Three friends. Three, um, three friends. Three so best friends that anyone can have. We make constant insufferable references to the things they love yep. that are not to do with the movie. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes, if we're if we're just particularly bored, we'll talk about the movie. No, anyway. So, we saw The Disaster Artist. The Disaster Artist is a film... That shares the title with a book about the making of The Room. The book was written by Greg Sestero, yep. I believe, mm-hmm. who was in, in The Room, Tommy's friend. And now the film was produced, put together by... I uh, don't have my laptop, so I can't look up the details, but James Franco, Seth Rogen. It's, it's, it's a big, real Hollywood movie. It's, it's a big, <laughs> actual docudrama, sort of, yeah. uh, production of... It's actually good. I guess I can't say docudrama, because it doesn't use real footage it's just but it's it's a dramatization based on real events okay, sure. mm-hmm. about the making of the room and and it's fantastic it is outstanding in every way so good the people those of you who've seen the room and know that it's I mean I'll say poorly made <laughs> but we've talked before about how it's got its own quality the disaster artist is not they did not attempt to homage you know the room by getting one camera and some dude with a you know well, to taped two, it to two his hand. Right, I did it sorry. It's, right. Right. But <laughs> it's, it's a completely polished, fully finished, professional grade Hollywood movie. Real Hollywood um, movie. Yes. And Hollywood, just like this is a real, real American podcast. <laughs> um, and it's, it's just phenomenally well made. <laughs> wow. Tim just again. got that. Do it again. He's just spot on. Yes. And, um, <laughs> 
if you don't know what the room is or haven't seen the room, you can go watch The Disaster Artist. It'll, they'll, they'll explain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we'd recommend you watch the room first. Yeah, for you sure. get a lot more out of it. So, Joel, you are the one of us who least likes the room. <laughs> and you seem most excited about The Disaster Artist. You even brought notes. I time. did. I, I'm, I'm awfully prepared. Um, those of you who are following us on Instagram could probably see that I'm going to post it up later what my notes were saying. Um, I came out of this film and I said a phrase I never thought I would utter that now I want to rewatch ah. The Room. <laughs> and that that's how good the film was. That's that's what it inspired in me is like okay, <laughs> this this really captured that behind the scenes thing that I was missing from it. Like that's mm -hmm. that's the other piece of the puzzle that I wanted and they just fucking delivered. Yeah. Well, that's right cuz after the the room you were pretty much like how and why and what the fuck you know and I was like oh this is how the fuck okay <laughs> the the other the other high praise you gave it I don't know if you remember but this really stuck out when you were saying um, I don't want to give it away but like what you were able to forget about for two hours oh yeah I came out of the film and I said I oh. forgot Star Wars is coming out uh, tomorrow context for that is yes as of now Star Wars is releasing tomorrow uh, episode 8 The Last Jedi and I've been freaking out mm -hmm. I, I was g grateful to have the disaster artist to look forward to to temper my Star Wars fandom because mm -hmm. with that I'd be losing my mind otherwise you'd be speaking in Star Wars quotes at work all day mm, at, I was. More than usual. <laughs> More than, than usual. usual. <laughs> you know. So. Yup, now that. That's right. Oh Mark's gosh. speech just happened. I gotta say, I, I, I think I said something similar when we watched The Room, but the disaster artist really hammered it home that the journey of the film itself, of The Room itself, is a great representation of real life because... You know, it was set out to be a, a you know a serious Academy Award contending drama, and instead, it's one of the most beloved cult comedy films yeah. ever. And it seems like Tommy has really embraced that from the little we glean from, yeah. from the disaster artist, including actual information about the real Tommy, yeah. you know, etc. And that's just—it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to see. Because he could have been just horribly sad and disappointed, which it would seem he was for a time, that this was not mm -hmm. what you wanted. This was not what you set out for. He put in work and money and a piece of your soul into something, like we do into many aspects of our lives, and it came out the opposite of what he wanted. Mm -hmm. But it came out, it still had its value. Yeah. And, and he, saw, he saw that. And so he embraced it. It's a beautiful thing. That's, yeah. that's wonderful. Isn't that what we all exactly. want out of our lives? To see the beauty that has come of it. And that's the... Like, which, which will come. I'm sorry, Joel, no, but I, Whether we want it to or not. At the end of our lives, any point in our lives, you have a certain amount of beauty in every life. It's not always what you wanted, but it's there. Finding that and embracing that is... It's amazing. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, the story Wiza wanted to tell... Is his own freaking story, and it di it took somebody else <laughs> making the film about him making his own film to get that out. Like that's that's the narrative that I, I got. This is what made me get the room. Mm -hmm. Is watching this film. It's like this. This is why people keep coming back to it, and like the the mystique around it, for sure. Uh, that's kind of how I'm feeling. It it the, one of the thoughts I had coming out of it was it, it almost reminded me. Um, 
years ago I had a real love-hate relationship with the movie uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. And it kind of reminded me of that a little bit where, you know, uh, it was when I was about to go off to college, you know, to, to get a degree in composition. And here's this film about this guy who wanted to be a composer and ended up being stuck in a music teaching job. And, you know, the moral of the story, for that one at least, is supposed to be like, oh, but look, all these people he touched and he got to hear his, you know, his symphony performed at the very end. And it was like, yeah. You get to hear one thing performed, and it wasn't even that good. Like, well, how much, you know, and, but but it had that sort of like, um, <laughs> if you want, you know, to be kind of pessimistic, a kind of like, well, okay, I'll, I'll settle for this. Like, I couldn't Stay in have, your lane, more yeah, on. like I couldn't have what I really wanted out of life. But at least, you know, yeah, I made some people happy, and it kind of works. So I'll embrace that, you know, even though it's not what I wanted. At least it, it could be worse. You know, it could be. You know, like like you know, like with with the room, like people could have just hated it, and it could have just drifted off into obscurity. But mm-hmm. like, people still loved it, you know, and and that's something I've thought a lot about with art. You know, uh, as a young artist and composer, it's like you feel like you want everyone to get you. You want everyone to see what you're putting into it, and you know, after a while, you kind of realize it's not about that. It's about people seeing what they're going to see from it, you know? And, and that was the cool thing about watching The Room. I feel like, you know, the three of us had three very different views on a lot of things, and it's like, you know, that's kind of the idea. Again, it wasn't what he intended. He wanted you to see his life, and I feel like feel sorry for him, but think, wow, he's this great guy, and he was so great to everyone around him and helped everyone, and he was betrayed by everyone who was close to him. And, you know, you do kind of get that, but you also, I don't know, they're probably like, yeah, there is like the humor, there's the sort of like, um, you know, when you start to pick the movie apart, like not just like the the narrative of it, but like yeah, the the, the process of of making the film, or like, well, wh- why is there the part about the breast cancer? Let me try to read into that. Let me make my own reasoning for why that was there. <laughs> you know, the, besides just being a, a twist, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, I think I guess that's part of it is like you know, if you can create something. You know, you you can't be married to how you want people to see it. You know, you have to create the 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 your truest idea of what it is going to be, which is what he did, and then he sort of you release it to the world. You know, you let them see what they're going to see in it, and and that's that's the best you can hope for. I think it's one of the greatest examples of the death of the artist. Like yeah. instantly, is that mm-hmm. this is how he presented it, and this was his desire. Yeah, it was read in a completely different way mm-hmm. to its success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, to come back to the way you have to sort of embrace the things that happen, it reminds me of a quote from the Avatar TV series from Uncle Iroh about life happens wherever you are, whether you make it or not. And similarly about something I gleaned recently while talking to my mom, actually, about how you have to sort of, you have to take the, take the power to make your life wherever you are. Um, she was talking about when, when I was very little and we moved across the country and away from all their parents, family, and mm. friends and everything. But how, you know, how she could have... I, I may have misinterpreted here. Sorry, Mom, if that's the case. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I you could have just been all sad about, oh, well, I was looking forward to this future, raising my kids with my siblings' kids and our families and friends. And, but instead, it was like, okay, well, we're here now. And, you know, you have to sort of dive aggressively into okay now this is my life mm-hmm. not not to sort of you know reach for what you left behind and and she was talking about how she's come out with 
a lot of great experiences, a lot of great people that we've met, other children mm. to raise me with, and lots of friends and family and neighbors and good people, and and you know, family in terms of not blood family, they were still on the East Coast, but you know, whereas we were talking about how if if they had never moved, you know, you you that she would not have been sad for the future that would have been in California because she wouldn't have known it existed, right? Right. And in that way, when you do move, you can't be sad for the future that didn't happen that you were imagining that might have happened right. because it doesn't exist either. It's just that knowledge sort of spoils us. You know, and you, you sort of have to choose to say... I was talking about colleges, I think it was, that if I'd chosen a different college, mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't be sitting around right now going, oh, damn, I never made a podcast. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> yeah. I would have other friends I was doing other things with. Maybe right. we'd all be mini-golfing right now. Who knows? <laughs> you know, that would be our weekly thing or something. And you can't... So when you come to decisions or to events that happen to you or what have you, you have to sort of have faith that there aren't right and wrong decisions or there's just different ones mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and in the case of The Room Tommy sort of embraced that and he was like oh well he could have said all this was a mistake it was all waste it was all terrible and just he could have just given up on, on all of it but he didn't he looked at it and went no I'm gonna I'm gonna find the find the good in this mm -hmm. you know I'm really interested with that final sequence because we see uh, Dave Franco who's great come out and convince Tommy to go back in and see that what he created is inspiring joy and people are really enjoying it. And then Tommy, like, it shifts in his mind that, okay, this is okay, this is what I wanted, mm -hmm. not how I wanted it. Yeah. I'd be interested to see if that's actually how that went down or if after a certain point Tommy came around to that. Because he kind of, like, everything rolls off the back of him. Like, he, he seems to be able to process things pretty... Right. smoothly and make those transitions and nothing really sticks to him. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see him with his jealousy over Greg having a girlfriend and moving out and that whole thing, and he he kind of, like, sits on those things and lets them fester, but it, it'd be interesting to see if that transition happened that quickly at the premiere, or if it was a couple weeks, a couple months. Right, was the way it happened in the film just kind of a metaphor for the overall right. arc of, yeah. like, you know... Like, even, even to now, you know, like, looking at it now where he's popular and, and it's this cult hit. Like, like was it only recently that he said, oh, hey, like, I'm still popular, even though it wasn't, you know, like you said, for the reason he wanted to be. Yeah. And that, and that was something I remember thinking of at the end. Like, is this a way to kind of make the narrative of the story kind of complete and whole and, and, and stuff like that? And it's, you know, not based on fact, but, but yeah, like, sort of symbolic of the journey as a whole. And, um, yeah. Yeah, that was one of the moments, and um, that one and the one with Greg and Brian Cranston that were sort of the mm. only two moments in the entire film that jumped out at me as things they might have condensed or punched up for mm. the sake of the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe they were true, I don't know, I haven't read the book. Maybe Judd Apatow's appearance, too. I don't know, I, I feel like that one was entirely added, if only because it, Greg wasn't in the scene. Well, then again, they could have worked with Tommy, and maybe Tommy was... But, you know, coming from the book, which was written by Greg, right. I sort of wonder, like, how would Greg have known that? Mm -hmm. um, how how many people might Tommy have approached in a restaurant, and how many of them were or anybody? Or how re reliable like a narrator Tommy would have been about mm -hmm. that. Et cetera. Yeah. So, I mean... But the other two are the only parts that made me go, 
Oh, I bet you there might have been some changes here. Like you said, for the sake of expediency or point making or what have you. But the rest of it didn't have that problem that a lot of based on true event films do. Where mm-hmm. I'm sitting there the entire film, you know, that doesn't seem just likely. going. Mm-hmm. They took a bullet point list of events and made a film. Right. You know, this felt very genuine. And again, I don't know if it is. I haven't read the book. I haven't talked to anybody. But it felt that way mm-hmm. much more than most films of its kind. I was wanting to ask you guys what you thought of the Franco's uh, portrayals in this. Like, because I, I was thoroughly impressed with both of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. James was born to play this guy. <laughs> and Dave is an incredible actor. And to play the straight man to your brother, who's this eccentric filmmaker, yeah. playing another eccentric filmmaker, like, yeah. I feel like. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't that difficult for him to roll into that part because this is his life. But like, yeah. I always forget how good Dave is. It's, yeah, he kind of gets overshadowed by James, I, I, mm-hmm. or just the weirdness that kind mm-hmm. of floats around him. But right, yeah, I, th- I thought it was um, it was cool because yeah, like when you see them normally, like how similar they look, but how much that was kind of washed away, and how much they kind of like lost themselves in their characters you oh, know yeah. like like even Dave I feel like he probably doesn't get as much credit for for like doing that role as, as much as James would because of how much of a different transformation it was but like you know that like how seeing how timid he was as an actor at first yeah. and, you know and kind of getting into it and seeing that that struggle between like you know him you know wanting to be friends with him but also still wanting to be an actor that whole like that whole Brian Cranston moment yeah. where you know he has to make the choice between doing Tommy's movie and having an experience which could like launch his career um like I th- all of that I thought was like really like like wow like that's you know I I feel like you kind of look you know assume that that, that Tommy's kind of the center but it's like you know yeah well the book was written by Greg and he is kind of like the the star of the story in in that sense you know mm-hmm. to see him take that that central role and um you know he wasn't just a sidekick i guess is kind of yeah. what i'm trying to say you know like like i feel like if you were expect to see the two those two brothers <laughs> two brothers you expect to be the, <laughs> see those two brothers in a film like you know uh, james franco is batman and dave franco is robin but it was like they were they were way more it was more like superman and batman like they were you know two sides of that same coin and Yes, it was really cool to see them like have kind of that equal footing together. Um, it was another film that made me well. It, it, it on its own, it made me go a few times. Oh yeah, these guys are brothers. Mm-hmm. But and then I was going to say another film that made me go ah, actors pretending to be actors or actors pretending to be not so great actors. Oh, like, there's right. so many levels of performance yeah. there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it all just felt it all felt believable. They, everyone in the film carried a lot of weight because the cast is fairly small. Mm-hmm. So pretty much everyone is really present in some way or other. Even Greg's mom was only present in one scene. You know, there's except for maybe the bank teller, and right. then the restaurant scene. There aren't a lot of people who just show up for a line or two and step out again. There are people who are like here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who's yeah. this guy? There are people who are here, and they're here for a duration, and there's an impact. And every single one of them, even the people I knew were famous other people, like Franco's and Seth Rogen and, and the bank teller, for example, it didn't... It was really easy to lose that. 
in the film and just watch these people, these real people, the stuff mm -hmm. was happening to. Right. You know, I have trouble with that in, in certain films, setting aside the actor from the character. Right. And sometimes that can be to the benefit of the film and sometimes not. But here I had no trouble with that at all. Yeah. I believe James as Tommy mm -hmm. instantly. Like, yeah. And the way he's introduced, he's from the, the shadows, that part of the trailer where he comes out and he does Stella. Mm -hmm. Like, it's perfect. And then th that, that sequence where they go to the diner and they're reading that ridiculous play mm -hmm. and to see the transformation in Greg yeah. and what Tommy brings out of him, it just that mm -hmm. spark was really, really cool. And that's, like, seeing that was like, this is how this guy could make a movie. Yeah. This yeah. this is how people got behind him and wanted to see whatever he made happen. He, is, you know? he, he realized what a lot of people don't often seem to realize, that you really need to tap into the human emotion of a performance. And that there's great power in that. And that was like that scene in the diner. Like it, he made it possible for like, forget these other people. They're not mm -hmm. here. It's you and me. And then he just poured out his own feeling, and Greg fell off of that. And mm -hmm. boom! Performance, you know? Acting! And he even shows in the room. We talked about it a bit, especially that last scene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, we could feel that the range. anguish. And, right. You know, so there's there really is something there. For sure. Something worthwhile, even in the traditional, straightforward sense of what Tommy was going for in the first place. And not just something worthwhile in the comedic sense. And that was communicated very well in this film. It was actually really nice to see that sort of affirmed, that that emotional core that we had picked out of the room, you know, to see that driving Tommy yeah. <laughs> throughout the disaster artist. <laughs> you know, and part of it was, it was almost like watching Romeo and Juliet where you're kind of like, oh, wait a minute, maybe, maybe this will end okay. <laughs> and I remember like when they first start making the film being like, wow, like he's a, he's a really good director. Like he's really pulling. And then it came for his first time behind the camera and that's when you're like, oh, no, no, that's right. I know how this is going to end. <laughs> you know, like, and it was like, so it was interesting to see that, you know, uh, that, yeah, it's like, there there are things that you're good at, but you, yeah, you need to find what those are and work and cultivate. Like, I feel like he, had he just directed the film but not starred in it, it probably would have been a way different film, like, well, way better. Then again, maybe we wouldn't be talking about it right now. Yeah. But, like, it was that part where it's like, oh, it's his first time behind the camera. And that's when we get that great scene where it's like, you know, take 69 or whatever. And it's just like, God damn it, why can't you say this line? And, and how, how he was able to organize everything. You know, I mean, granted, he had that money to just dump into it. Right. And that's part of how it happened. But, but, I mean, you know, he wanted to be legit. Like, he hired the crew. He got everyone together. Okay, we need this person. Okay. You know, and when, when Greg was kind of, you know, struggling with his scene... He really like pulled a good performance out of him, and it was like, wow, like this is going to be okay. This is working, and then it was just like, uh, yeah, I don't know if it was either like too much or just the fact that it's like, yeah, like you have this raw energy, but like if I guess maybe if you're making a film, there has to be a way to refine it somehow, and and they weren't able to to refine and contain him, you know, like and the, you know the scene when they're trying to do the 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 you know. Um, oh yeah, you know this. You know, girl was with twelve guys, and one of them find out. Now she's in the hospital. <laughs> what a story, Mark! And it was just like, like you know, 
the, the, one of the things the film did well is it it answered a lot or it asked the same questions exactly. that we were asking. Exactly. Like, why the fuck is he laughing at that? Like, how? Like, what? It's and that not was supposed to be funny. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's like so. So things. And it, it reminds me of the the conversation we had with, with John about George Lucas earlier today. Like, <laughs> someone needed to tell him, no, this is not. What, no, we are changing this. Exactly. This is stupid. And 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 that I think was what the downfall was was that he he had so many he had some really great ideas he had even some really great execution but there was no one to say like okay wait no this is where you're going over the line and when we were, he would say oh, okay you're right like that right I I shouldn't laugh at that we should do something else right. and it was I feel like little like that's when the cracks started to appear you know and you're like that's mm. why okay <laughs> something just clicked for me but during the film. So I was, I've said before that Greg was our Watson to Tommy's Holmes, mm-hmm. in that he's the normal person who we see the exception. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like eyes. that. Yeah. But once the filming begins, we hit a certain point during the production when that stops, when Tommy's thoughts and relationship, or Greg's thoughts and relationship with Tommy become his own in his head. And you can sort of see on his face the thoughts, there's stuff going on in there, but we stop seeing it laid out for us. That's when we start seeing through the eyes of the film crew instead. Oh, okay. When they become us. Mm-hmm. And Greg remains just a little distant after that from the audience, I think. But um, touching on our overarching theme about different paths to the same result, when Tommy's trying to do that line, it's a scene where, where Tommy tries to say his line, he can't say his line, and they take a billion tries. <laughs> that sort of thing happens in regular film productions, not typically because one actor loses a line. But because one loses a line, then the next take someone else loses a line, right. then a piece of scenery falls, then a lamp boils over, then something, you know, light burns out, etc., etc. Or sometimes it just doesn't click, and they do it again and again and again. And at the end, everyone's exhausted, the scene ends, they cut, and there's that sort of, everyone looks at each other, sort of breathless, because that, that spark just sweeps through the room, and they all go, yeah, we got it. Everybody cheers. They got that. In the room with <laughs> yeah. that scene. Yeah. <laughs> it, again, it, it happened because it was so bad instead of so okay or good. But it was the same elation. Hmm. Do you right. know? Yeah, Visibly, we, we got it. Was it. Indistinguishable. Yeah. Yeah. They went, oh my God, everyone cheered and clapped and yelled. And, and you know, in this case, it was relief at being able to go home. But <laughs> it was still relief and accomplishment of we yeah. did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Back to what you were saying, Tim, about them asking the questions we asked. Yeah. I love that the first line that the actress who plays the mom says is, does this ever come back about the breast cancer? Do we ever? Yes. I was like, I yes. almost stood up. I was like, this is exact. This is my character. This is me in the yep. film. Perfect. <laughs> and it, that's the thing. Like, it's it's really cool to see through the produ- stages of productions, all the questions that we asked were mm-hmm. asked. And it was just pile drove through anyway right yeah there were, there were no answers there's yeah <laughs> there's something satisfying about like having it be unanswered for them too right, right like yeah there wasn't this secret thing that they've kept from us right. it's just this is what tommy said yeah this is this is how it went yeah this is what we're doing okay <laughs> why is he fucking your belly button i don't know <laughs> and when, when, when they're watching and the the sequence is so long, mm-hmm. and the actress who's playing oh, Lisa yeah. says it's still going. Yes, it, it was like perfect, <sighs> just just outstanding, capturing how it felt to watch the film, even from the perspective of the people in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's this like 
Sphinx-like enigma of a film to even the people participating in it. Right. This vortex of yeah. no sense-making. I wish I could say that's happened to me on occasion from inside something I've been a part of. But I, I don't... I think the closest we've come is a couple piece, weird pieces of music I played in high school band that from within the band as a player with my one part I don't I often lack a sense of the complete piece that I have to dress it down without playing and just listen to it you know that my parents will get at our concerts or I might get if someone records something mm-hmm. but that's just for mess up the nature of my my nature as a as a performer that my focus is on my part and I can't always hold the whole thing in my mind like that especially, right. especially with music in particular mm-hmm. yeah and there were a couple of weirder tunes that we were told was like, oh yeah, all these effects are going to come together to make this cool sound thing happen for the audience. And afterwards, I get back up to the car, and you know, mom goes, oh, great performance. Just, so that one piece, what was that? And I go, <laughs> It's like, it's clear to me that we had a miniature of a room. <laughs> you know, if something mm-hmm. was supposed to happen here, <laughs> I don't know what it was. But I'm trying to think on a larger scale, or particularly in the theater, and I, I don't know. I don't think I can. Because everything that I've worked on is just it's you presented more coherently. Yeah. Well, yeah, like theater, you're you're going to perform it, you know, linearly. Mm. Whereas, like with film, when you're you know, oh, we're shooting the last scene first, so it's like this is all this stuff. Yeah, like you said, you have to keep in your head going mm. into this scene. But you did just click for me a mini, another mini example was just the the whole stage effect while went on stage because all we can see is there's this house and this piece is painted some weird color and then the light cues come up and then halfway through the scene they add another blue light from that lamp in the corner like mm-hmm. we have no clue what the hell is going on but when you sit in the audience you get this beautiful set and light and right. the blue light comes on and it's the moonlight coming out from behind the cloud and, and it works in a way that only works from the house from the seats right. it does not work from on stage or backstage right. or mm-hmm. anywhere else because that's so that the, the targeted nature of theater. This was that on a much larger scale. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, I think one of my more memorable examples was the beginning of, I think it was The Sound of Music. Yes. Opens with a bunch of nuns and they're holding candles and they're singing at the, the, the monastery or whatever it is. Convent. Convent, sure, where, whatever they call it in the film. You know. And they had a bunch of us crew in the back dressed in essentially ninja outfits with candles so that there were sort of floating candles behind them. Mm. So we're standing there passing the flame from candle to candle and posing, and we can see everything! The candle light is plentiful! I can see this guy in the weird hand-cut ninja costume next to me. (laughs) Um, But from the friends I had who saw the thing, they could not see us at all. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't believe it. I was just like, no, like, normally I'm behind a piece and in the darkness and I'm still visible if I get exposed. Mm. Here I was out on stage holding a light source like how could you not see us but they they couldn't Mm. I never was able to wrap my head around that Mm. you know every night we'd go out there in our ninja garb and just stand there like with this sort of shaking our heads in our minds like (laughs) looking at the audience going you're looking at me and and looking for eyes and no one's looking at us Now I really want a Sound of Music remake with ninjas. Is that, is <laughs> our, that wrong? our joke was because we're on stage with the nuns, we were ninjas. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with nunchucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's I think, like you said, Tim, very great, great uh, 
I don't want to say observation, but it's a great point that films aren't even done straight through. Right, yeah. So there's more confusion from people yeah. who are involved to be expected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was something else entirely. It was confusion from the performers that equals that of the audience. Yeah. Which doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Normally for good reason, but there you go. You said something, Joel, that I was very glad to hear you say. You said, after we came out of The Disaster Artist, this made watching The Room worthwhile. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like I said, I, I really want to go back and watch it now. I, I actually Today, I was online looking at the DVD, con- contemplating <laughs> buying it. Like, it. It was... Oh, that's why you sent us the link to the Tommy Wiseau watches. Yes, today. there's a line of Tommy Wiseau watches. Watches look pretty nice, actually. <laughs> yeah, they Some do. I yeah. really want <laughs> one now. <laughs> Plenty of other stuff. Clothes Christmas is and coming up. Scott will get each other one. Oh, <laughs> How cool would that be? <laughs> Wiseaches? What? Wiseaches? Yeah. How do we combine these two W words? Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm really interested to go back and watch it now. I, I, again, I never thought I'd say that. Mm-hmm. And I think something that definitely made me want to in Disaster Artist was the recreation of the scenes. Because mm-hmm. we see created clips. perfectly. Oh, God, so good. Not just in their filming, but they... The blocking, the, the blocking, way they play, the lighting, inflection. Everything mm-hmm. you were about to say, Joel, yeah. that we see at the end. Yeah, we get to see them side by side with the original footage, and it's incredible. And it made me want. We talked about this a little bit because we couldn't couldn't hold it in. Like, did they just reshoot every scene in the room? And if so, where can I buy that? Because I would love yes. to see it. Yeah, like I need a version of that. I need, I need all three versions. I need right. the original and the remake and, and the side by side. side. Exactly. Yep. And director commentary over the top. Yeah, for if both for get, all three yeah. versions. If yeah. you think Wiseau to be, I like, need I need Tommy Wiseau over the room and Franco over their reproduction, and, then and then I need the two of them talking to each other over the side by side. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I don't know. It, it, it's it's great uh, just to see those recreated and just like getting them so precisely. Right but wrong, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Like yeah. they captured the wrongness completely right. You know, this was such a, such a, so much devotion to this work. There's a lot of love in disaster mm-hmm. artists, mm-hmm. and not just to people's navel. <laughs> that was a long bow. Sorry, I should have said stomach <laughs> navel. Uh, that, that was that was my. <laughs> I got it eventually, so maybe it was worth it. I'm gonna cut that pause. It's gonna sound a lot better. <laughs> I did a laugh track, <laughs> but it's gonna be your Tommy Wiseau but, laugh track. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. <sighs> And I, and I think that's another parallel too is that like whatever we think of you know the room it was it was a work of love for Tommy you know like it was you know it it was his life you know it wasn't it wasn't uh, you know like you hear about a lot of, a lot of filmmakers who like um you know, oh yeah, when me and my friends were kids, we would make a bunch of films, and or me and my brothers and sisters, we make films and show them to our parents, and this and this and that. You know, this was like him as this grown ass man being like, okay, this is something I've always wanted to do, and he's had, you know, th- those life experiences that he's like pouring into this. You know, there's 
there's a there's a degree of naivete because he's never done it before, but also a degree of experience because he's he's lived for longer. We don't know how long, but we know he's not in his twenties when the, the film but was made. But you know, made. there is a sense of him having not existed until he arrived in Greg's life. <laughs> yeah. In the sense that he's not heard of famous things, you know, seen any famous movies. He doesn't have basic concepts of things. It's like Mr. Like Bean just kind of comes down. Someone with that much money, too. And it's a lot of money implied. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been on the film, and it was apparently an unnoticeable amount. That just doesn't... He had never thought before that he could take that money and go make a movie with it. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. But he hadn't, apparently. Right. Not until Craig said, let's make a movie. I get the sense that like, oh. he lived in some small town in Poland and just had all this money. I don't know. It's just strange. Mm-hmm. And he just happens... He's almost like this walking deus machina. Like, huh. he has an apartment in L.A. that he doesn't use and it's completely paid for. Yeah. He has all this money in this bottomless account and can pay for everything. Yeah. He's for Greg, a, he is. He's this, this angel that comes out of the sky and says, you need to... You want to do your dream, but it's hard because you need to just basically hit your head against the wall until you get somewhere. Well, done. Place to live? Done. When... Food to eat, money, done. Do it. Go audition. Just go hit the wall. You know, people can't just show up in L.A. with a place to stay. They need and then auditions to do. They need to find a place, and then they need to get jobs to pay their bills, and then they need to do auditions. You know, via Tommy, Greg was able to slide into that much more smoothly. That's really... Is, go ahead. Which is why it's so easy to understand his devotion to Tommy... Especially in the Brian Cranston bit, you know right. his, his loyalty, the, 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 yeah, what he feels with Tommy, with you know, not just a sense of debt, which is certainly there, but that even along the way, Tommy only ever wanted you know friendship from him. Right. There's this disaster artist captures such a like the difficulty of making it in Hollywood because even with this you have a place to stay you have this endless string of money you get an agent right off the bat three years go by and nothing happens for him Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how difficult that is and it also like within while they're shooting they're talking to the actors and Greg asks the, the, um, the mom why do this you live so far away you already have a a life, you've kids, you've got a husband, you've got all this stuff provided for. Why come out and do this? Why subject? She she just got finished fainting because it was too hot. So hot yeah. mm-hmm. And she just took it as red. It's like the worst day on a movie set is the is better than anything else. But like the amount of stuff that they put up yeah. with, the girl who plays Lisa oh, is man. fine with being objectified and uh, shamed for body shamed and remake-up like in front of all these other people mm-hmm. Paul Shear's character comes back comes out as like you're a dead man why are you doing this to this person that's embarrassing yeah. that's terrible of you and she's like I'm a professional yeah. I'm okay with this yeah let's it's do this, the scene it's yeah. this bizarre world that these actors the live show in must go on mm-hmm. yeah it's okay this is not the worst thing that it could be that they have something more important than themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the, whatever that end result is going to be, and the audiences who are going to see it is more important than themselves. And that's something I haven't gotten from any other movie about making movies. You know, there's a little bit of it in Birdman, just the amount of stuff that he 
the shit in his life and how he uses that to portray things on stage and constantly falls short. But in this, it was very clear, like, they're desperate to create this thing, even if the thing isn't the great thing that they're anticipating it being. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it just really was interesting to see that regard like collapsing under heat stroke and she's out eating outside and just happy to be there because it's better than anything else mm-hmm. I got that a, to a point working in the theater um, you know when you have actors who we have accidents that in some cases could have been fatal if things had been slightly different mm-hmm. and they just keep going with their performance like nothing happened or crew members who come off stage, you know, with their hands bleeding because they got caught in something. And when it went, bam, like a car door, they didn't yell or call for medical attention. They just pulled their hand back and shook it and then pulled the piece off one-handed and made all sorts of motions but didn't know sound because the show was happening and it's more important than us, you know. And it's something that I know off podcast I've ranted to you guys about a lot as far as that mentality is not present in a lot of other places in the world. I was just going to say... Like part-time jobs? Yeah, there's there's no... That passion doesn't really exist anywhere else of creation, right? Like... And it's funny because I I don't even... I don't even... Not passion, even. Just that's sort of the standard. Like, the... If you're here, there is this other thing. And you're going to contribute to it. It's a responsibility. Hmm. And that's gone both ways in my life. I've had cases where... uh, uh, Even at my current job, where a manager gave me some regretful info. All, this, all the time we just spent putting something somewhere was going to have to be undone and completely done again backwards, basically. And it was just, it was the way it was. And the manager just, like, apologized. I was like, I'm sorry, guys, but that just, we didn't know before when you had to do the thing, but now we know. You know, it was no one's fault. And I'm just standing there going, great, don't worry about it. Like, frustrating to undo all your work and redo it? Sure, but, like, it's, it's the job. But he felt so bad about it, he did it himself. <laughs> because, you know, I... He didn't expect that of me. Gotcha. And in that case, it worked out in a, in a positive way, you know. Right. But it, it's worked out in a very negative way, too, in terms mm-hmm. of, like, I no, just you just do your job. This is the job for today, and it sucks more than it did yesterday. It might be better tomorrow, but that's this is why you're here, mm-hmm. you know. And that ranges from basic responsibility to get the, get the show must go on on stage or the film must be completed in a studio to great passion it covers that whole stretch mm-hmm. and I'm trying to think now of anywhere I've seen that that wasn't while I was working in the theater that mm-hmm. was on on film presented in another work of fiction or pseudo fiction and I, I think I have to agree with Joel I haven't really seen that anywhere else because well, that's the thing like the desk job I have now the best day at that job it could not measure up to the worst day doing what I love doing, you know, like mm-hmm. I would never say that like, <laughs> this job sucks, but it's, the worst day is better than any other thing that I could be doing, like that that is unique to doing something creative, I think mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I wonder if part of it, and this is a very sort of rudimentary way of looking at it, but like 
the, the sort of like hourly rate versus yeah like you're doing something for the sake of an end result like like redoing a bunch of mm-hmm. shelves or whatever is like whatever I'm here for X amount of hours anyway right, whatever you, you tell know, me to do that's my job you know either job, I right. do the stuff or I don't do it I get the sa- paid the same either way thank you yes. versus, you have yeah. hit the line that delineates the difference between the basic responsibility and the passion yeah that in the theater if I was told to undo and redo something it was with enthusiasm because it's I it's going to make the show the better right yeah. whereas in the bookstore it's a sort of it's still I'm going to do it I'm sure I'm not going to complain that's the job it's my basic responsibility yeah. but I'm not saying that I do it you know? right yeah and not because it's not a musical bookstore but just because there's no <laughs> yeah. passion you know? but yeah you really hit the nail on the head yeah. there Tim and I mean you know and that, and that stuff I've seen with my own work too you know like like starting trying to start out and get a name for myself you know you take on jobs for for kind of little money but it doesn't mean that you say well I'm only getting you know $200 for this film score so I'm going to do $200 worth of work it's like I'm putting what probably you know other people would get paid thousands of dollars for because I want this to be the best I can make it every time no matter what I'm getting paid like there's no there's no making excuses in the art field where it's like wait a minute audience we know that this production isn't as great as you were expecting but we only had a budget of Five thousand was on Broadway. It's a hundred thousand. It's like no, like that better be a damn good fucking show. Like, mm-hmm. and this better be, you know. And it's so yeah. It's like you, you know, every every project like that is your is your baby. You know, so you you want it to be as best as well. You know, good artist. I feel like you know there are plenty of people I'm sure who are just like, you know, oh, well, I'm only getting paid for this, so I'm just going to phone it in and you know <laughs> get it done or whatever. But um, but yeah, yeah, you it's definitely more end result based. You know where it's like, I I I'm putting myself into this. You know, I I, I never put myself into my hourly hourly jobs. You know, right, it's like right. you know, I'm I'm trying to reserve as much of myself for when I get home and can actually work on the things I'm passionate about. You know, and that's the thing. Like with work like that, you put it down at four thirty. Yeah, you spent all day thinking about the creative thing you got to do when you get home. Yeah, yeah. Right, like that's the like. Stuff like that, stuff you're passionate about and want to create, there's no end of shift on that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's why you're up till three in the morning, you know. Even though you've got to wake up at six for your other job, and it's because it's just like, no, like this is when I feel alive. This is what, this is what I, you know. If, yeah, this is, if money weren't a factor, this is what I would be doing because I want to, you know, not not because I, I, I it's a job and I've been hired to do this, and, and I, I, that's almost kind of what's like misleading about that whole like, oh, I'm a professional. It's like. You know, everyone who's doing whatever stupid job they're doing can be considered a quote-unquote professional, but they're not going to put that level of work into it. You know, it's yeah, it's because this is this is something you you pride yourself in and you're you're passionate about and you want to be doing, and and it makes you feel alive as opposed to dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> the seventy-fifth customer service voice phone call, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> it's, it's in terms of professionals, though. There's professionalism. Mm. Which I think to help again, it's the difference yeah, yeah. between where you go extra and where you do what's expected, mm-hmm. and between not doing that. You know, like in a bookstore, you have to have professionalism because you have to well, professionalism. You have to do your job. Mm-hmm. You have to do yeah. it right. Yeah. You have to shelve the books correctly. Yeah. You know, you don't have to spend Alphabet. your spare time. You know, gilding the edges of the pages and adding, you know, encrusting jewels to the spine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not. But you also can't just sort of uh, shove them on the shelf. Like, you know, you have to just, just do the job, just put it in the spot. 
And for people, that is their baseline. For professionals, mm -hmm. their baseline is doing it right. Mm -hmm. Then it can ascend to doing it with passion. Right. <laughs> Not everything can, but some things can. But that mm -hmm. just as a sort of as an execution of the responsibility to this thing other than yourself, your worst is do it right. You know, yeah. Which is, isn't to say you don't make mistakes, obviously, but. So, so even though you know you you don't like your part-time jobs and everything, and you you don't put yourself into it, that's fine. You don't have to. You just got to do it. Yeah. You know. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I think that's another part of it too. And I think we've talked about this before in other podcasts about you know the idea of art not having to serve a purpose other than be art. You know, like mm -hmm. at the bookstore, there's a logical reason why things have to be in order alphabetically so that customers can find them, they can get in, they can get out, they're right. happy. They, you know, mm -hmm. like with with making a movie or doing a theater production or music or whatever, like there, nothing has to be anything, you know, yeah. like we're, we're making things what we want them to be or, you know, n not necessarily you personally, but whoever, right. whatever the director, right. you're helping achieve the director's vision or, you know, I mean, my case, you have designer, 600 you know. different musicals about Jesus, right? <laughs> <laughs> because they each have a different artistic mm -hmm. end goal. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but none of them have to be anything, you know, right. There's no, there's no logical reason, you know, and that's why nobody, nobody punches in and punches in and out and says, okay, well, you're going to come in for, you know, an eight-hour shift and make this Jesus musical the most logical, you know, Jesus. Music. It's like, no, that's that's not how it works. It's like you, you do it until it's the best that you can envision, and then you inspire other people to to help you see your vision come mm -hmm. to life and. And you you know you do that so that so that again as we said earlier other people will watch it and not get at all what you were trying to say. <laughs> right. right. But that, yeah, that was captured very well in the disaster artist. That nature of both the passion and the professional duty of the mm -hmm. artist, and it was captured in a way that wasn't very heavy-handed. Because I was thinking now I have seen it sort of in a couple of other films, but it's it's so ham-fisted. In this one. And in this and one, it's effortless, it's right? In this one, you just see it. And there's just that one conversation that you mentioned about, uh, why do you keep doing this? And she says, because it's, you know, worst I hear is better than the best day ever. That's the only part that, like, sort of gets in your face about it. Mm -hmm. And it's the culmination of having seen all the other stuff happen. Yeah. And it's, like, it's, it's gone unsaid to that point. Like, mm -hmm. this is why Greg is doing it. This is why Tommy is doing this. Yeah. And she's... She's the veteran. Like, she's yeah. the one who's been in the industry the longest, and she just fucking collapsed. Yeah. And then she stays, and then she does her part, you know? And she, she's the muse. It's mm -hmm. like... And I... That casting. Oh, okay. she, she yeah. Well, I... And I had a theory, too, um, and, you know, again, this movie has been out for... A, not the, the, the disaster artist, but The Room. Like, I had a theory after watching it um, about a few of the things that seem kind of pointless and irrelevant. And I'm sure other people have had these theories too. And I mean, it's been out for long enough, but um, I think the whole breast cancer thing, my theory on that is it's this older, more experienced woman talking to, to Lisa and Lisa's kind of got this young, Oh, I don't really like him anymore. We're supposed to get married, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I, I think it was almost her way of kind of hammering home. Like, Hey, I have breast cancer. I'm like, I'm this whole person. I, I I could I could die very soon. Like like you need to get your shit together, get your priorities in order, and be like you've got this guy who treats you great. He's you know he he dotes all over you, buys you stuff, this and this and that, 
and you know you're you're kind of messing around with like oh I don't know I might this you know and it's like someday you're going to be old and maybe alone and maybe you'll get breast cancer and you'll you'll have nothing to show for it you know so Your I think grateful daughter won't care <laughs> right yeah. yeah so I think it was that that was a little bit of kind of maybe the connection I was starting trying to make in my own head of like okay I can see where, where that comes in mm-hmm. um, an, another scene that I thought of that that kind of made sense when I m- tried to make it is um, the one where he goes to buy the flowers. And, um, Hi, and yeah, and, I, and I've talked about this with other people. I think it was, I was telling my wife about this, and and I'm explaining it to her, and it was just like it was so unnecessary. Like he could have shown up with flowers, no one would have said, "Well, wait a minute, where did he get those fucking flowers?" I, this bullshit. It's like they didn't have to show a scene of him buying flowers, but I think it was the fact that like when he walks in, and the the, the when the shop owner's like, "Oh, oh, hi, Tommy," like, "Oh, you're my favorite customer." Like he's trying to set himself up to be this you. hero, you know, and that that whole thing of like, you know, like, no, you're the villain. Like, you look like a villain. He's like, no, I'm hero, and and I think it's because he was trying to prove to the world, like, look, everybody likes this guy, you know, like he's a great guy. He is great to his girlfriend. He's got this best friend, and they play football, and it's great and it's fun. So I think that was like in his mind an idea of, you know, it's not just about like, oh, well, he's nice to his girlfriend. His girlfriend loves him, but cheats on him anyway. It's like. Yeah, everybody thinks he's great. He's got this little kid he helps out. And even even the shop owner that, you know, he's either, you know, only in there a few times but makes such a good impression or he's in there buying flowers for his girlfriend all the time because he's such a great boyfriend, you know. And it was it was this, I think, really little piece that maybe in his mind, you know, maybe he extrapolated all that and maybe that's what I'm doing. Or maybe it was, you know, completely pointless and I'm, you know, looking for things that aren't there. Um, but again, you know, that's the point of art, you know. I'm you know seeing things that are you know trying to make meaning and put things together for myself but um but that was one of those things where it was like oh like yeah I, like i get it like the scene is awkward and you know like too quick and like too you know like, like the, the way stuff you know i felt like i was watching gilmore girls for like 30 seconds where the dialogue just like bounces back and forth where it's like it's rehearsed and everyone okay you say this and as soon as i say this you say this but it was like maybe that's why it was there like it was his little way of inserting this like yeah everyone loves him you know this is this is what i want to make you believe about this guy before his life falls apart because everyone betrays him you can see the basic skeletal framework of of an actual typical movie. storytelling <laughs> <laughs> it's all there it's mm-hmm. show us main character establish his life that's awesome have things start going bad have things have this collapse increase in speed have him be left alone with nothing and give up. Mm-hmm. You know? Basic bullet points mm-hmm. for a compelling story. I found today, actually, I was looking at room stuff online, and I found... We know that. I we love that. about the watches. I love that. The script. There's a script in its entirety, is and it? it's for the play. Okay. And the opening scene in that is not the opening scene in the movie. Oh. It starts with Johnny and Lisa getting up, and they're fighting in the morning and it oh. automatically establishes like this tension between them in their relationship mm-hmm. it's really interesting I want to I'm gonna have to read it slowly because it's in why so to speak so uh-huh. it, it, it's trying to get used to that way of reading but it's I'm really interested to see how that flows if it does at all and see what was omitted and how how that narrative is built out when you're thinking about it for the stage mm-hmm. um we should just, put on a production of that. Yeah, radio play, like we said in the the room episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you will check your Facebook Messenger and say that I, we do radio play. We do great American radio play. Yes, it's happening. It's real yeah. American radio play. 
for, for the highway radio. <laughs> <laughs> as much as we like to ridicule, too, I hope it would be evident that this has brought us a lot of joy. No kidding. Yeah. Not sure. just the disaster artist, but also the room. Yep. Yeah. They both have. As, as begrudgingly as I say that. <laughs> it, it's it's a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of fulfillment to us. Time well spent, I think. I mean, I've had this songify the room song stuck in my head for 48 hours. Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> cheep, 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 cheep. Like, it's in my head. Like, watching all the behind-the-scenes stuff and honest trailers and screen... Uh, Rant cinema sins like mm-hmm. it's it's like infected How my brain. How many famous movie YouTube channels can we list? In yeah, that right. <laughs> so, no. um, <laughs> it's just it's it's a film to think about. Yeah, and there are a lot of films out there that are thought provoking. This one's really latched onto us more so than probably anything else we've watched so far, which is On the really podcast, interesting. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Although, admittedly, outside of Outside of maybe outside of Kaneskazi and maybe Pie, our films haven't necessarily been particularly philosophically thought provoking. Yeah, that's true. You know, they've been a little more straightforward. And any film can be thought provoking. Skycrawlers, sci-fi, and what it says about war, or Godzilla, and what it says about technology, and you know, every all these films can be. But it's sort of that there's a point, uh, not a point, but a subject-related point. Like I'm making a point, a point in the film that is the one that provides the seed for discussion, whereas the room itself, as a thing that exists, provides a seed for discussion, as well as every scene within the film providing their own seeds for discussion. The fact that it exists, how it came to exist, Mm -hmm. and then all the components of it as it exists now. Mm -hmm. So in every sense of it, it's thought-provoking. In a way way that most films aren't. Yeah. Because when you think about how this scene came together, how was it written this way? How was it shot this way? How did people wrap their heads around saying these lines this way? And then why are people going back to watch the scene over and over and over again? Yeah. It's crazy. That that amount of head work doesn't go into any other scene in any other movie, at least for me. I don't... Because it doesn't... It, it can't. Because the other films... You know the, the scene makes sense. You know <laughs> yeah. why it's there. You know what it's There's doing. There's the shorthand what it has of, to do. Yeah. You know, and then so here you can just look at the one scene and you can say it doesn't make sense in the film. Then you can say the film doesn't make sense. Then you can say the film getting made doesn't make sense. Then you can say this scene getting made during the making of the film doesn't make sense. And me watching what the you were saying, every piece of it is something that provides thought just by its very nature. Just to contemplate it is to ask questions, is to think and discuss. You know, whereas lots of other films, just by the fact that they're understandable, makes them less prone to that sort of thought. It's it's interesting, like, you bringing up the idea of something not making sense. Um, it made me think of... Uh, I remember someone well, saying something one the time. the idea of sense. What is yeah, sense? Well, well yeah. Well, like, I remember someone saying something about the idea of, like, like miracles are... Like I forget how it was put, but basically, like the the idea of a miracle is self defeating because a miracle is something 
that that can't exist, but once it happens, it can exist. So it's no longer a miracle. So it's almost like that, like like saying something doesn't make sense. Like, well, you can say that, but if it exists in reality, then it does make sense. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. So it's like almost like it's almost like this movie has like altered reality around it and created this like this bubble where it's like you know bending the laws of physics. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, everything like, about the room serves as a. You might ask a question about can be the thing where you say really that's what you're stuck on, you know like um, that happened with another film I watched called Rubber about a sentient tire that goes around murdering people. Oh yeah! And at the beginning <laughs> of the film, they say to us, "The point is there is no point." And at some point during the film, everyone I was in the room with went that like you know what, why did the the chair fall like that? Did gravity go weird? And we just look at them and go, "That's the thing you're confused about." I want to it's see a film that. about a tire is it worth blowing people's heads up. Yes, let's do a podcast episode. Um, <laughs> and the room is similar in that, like, if you want to ask, why was that? Why did the fall look like that? Why did the football get thrown like that? Why, why are did there anything? spoons in yeah. the... Of all the things, you know. Whereas lots of other films, even when they have a weird scene, it usually makes sense as you can say, what, that, that's the part. Why? Mm-hmm. That's the weird bit. But the rest of it is just accepted and coherent and something that you just take without question. Yeah. And if, if nothing else, the thing that it has going for it is, yeah, is that it's consistent. It is its own world, and it it it, it follows all its own rules, whatever whatever they are. You know, yeah, like like you're, like there's no one thing. It's not like when you watch other films that like, oh, this film is flawless except for this one little thing right. that bugs me. It's like the whole thing is is like that sort of hot mess. So it's like, well, it it works because the whole thing is a hot mess. It's consistent. The you know the the rules. It follows its own rules. The the rules that it sets up, and yeah, in that sense, almost creates its own its own world. You know, so within its world, it makes complete sense. Like every piece of it makes sense with every other piece. Um, it's kind of like what I um uh, I remember watching an episode of Frasier, and uh, the idea of eclecticism was was made sense to me. Where they're talking about like all of the the furniture in um in Frasier's apartment. And you know he's saying how it's 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 eclectic, like it all matches because none of it matches, you know. Yeah. Whereas yes. if you have two pieces yes. that go together, and then it looks it looks off, but because every piece is from like a different style or genre or whatever, like yes, this functions as a whole because there's a, a an equal amount of unmatchiness, and that's kind of almost like what the room is. It's an equal amount of awkwardness layered throughout the whole thing. So you're like, yes, across the board, this this. This works. This is consistently yeah. I like inconsistent. That yes, yeah. I like that metaphor of the room, of the yeah. furniture in the room. I mean, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> you know, if I had every piece of furniture in this living room matching except the coffee table, you'd just look at the coffee table and you'd go, "Where's your coffee table? Did you lose the original? Mm-hmm. What's going on? Yeah. Why the hell is this here?" Right. But instead, you have the way this room is actually set up, which is an amalgamation of arbitrary things my roommate and I have accumulated from some indeterminable number of sources. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you don't focus on any one piece in the room and go, huh. You just go, oh, hey, look, room. Yeah. yeah. Which, can we, can we talk about that? Why, why is it called the room? Have we, have we discussed that yet? Has that been discussed by other fans of it? Do, we, sure. do we have an answer? Tommy, I, they asked him about why they called it that. Yeah. It's just be, I, I, he was saying that it, it, it had, well, <laughs> I can't do an impression of him and I don't think I'm going to accurately portray what he was saying um, but the idea that it's a meeting space it's this comfortable place that Tommy exists in and it's it's this um, representation of his world 
Okay. It's this controlled space into which Lisa and Greg and all these people come, and it's it's communal and it's family, and like people are hooking up on the floor. There's BJ's going around. Like things are like he doesn't say this, but I'm saying like this is it's a communal space. It, it's this where That's Tommy's brilliant. world is, is happening, and then it's slowly getting eaten away by the people who betray him in his mm-hmm. safe space. That's right. Brilliant. Gotcha. Your home. You you make your home. This is yours, and the room or rooms of your home are the physical manifestation of that of what you built for yourself. Mm-hmm. And yet, you other people in their lives and such come through these spaces always. Everybody's life. It's part of your life. That's that's brilliant, actually. That's yeah. wonderful. And it's, I'm just now thinking of this. We see Tommy and Lisa hook up on the couch. We see Tommy and Lisa hook up on the stairs. We see Tommy and Lisa hook up in the bed. And then Greg hooks up with Lisa on the couch, on the stairs, and then in the bed, finally. So it's like this almost, Mm -hmm. God, I hate that I'm liking this film now. God, what happened? (laughs) Oh, it's such a visceral reaction before. Like, but this Greg and Lisa's (laughs) violating the sanctity of their relationship moves up into the room. Mm -hmm. It, 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 like, progresses and eats its way from the outside into the, the communal space up the stairs and into their bed. Mm-hmm. God. <laughs> it's just, there is, we talked about this during the Room podcast, there is brilliance here. There's something there. intelligence here. And great storytelling in places. Despite itself. Yeah. You know, just somewhere yeah. in, well, somewhere. It's, Lots of places in the transition didn't, yeah. didn't go so well. Well, it's like for every great strength, he has a great flaw and they're both equally represented. Like, for like the, the the writing of the story, like the outline is is great, but then the dialogue is what ruins that. And then like as yeah, like like I said, his directing, like the way he was able to pull performances out of people that they kind of show that, and, and you can see that, like like Greg, like Greg's is really good, like and the, and the old woman and and Lisa in her own way is like really good, but but then like he gets into act, and that's kind of what pulls it down in that sense in the performance sense. So it's just like yeah, it's almost like. Yeah, like like you said before, like stay in your lane. Like these are the things you're good at. Do those. Find someone else to do the other things. Like like work with someone else to write the dialogue. Okay, cool. Now that you've got this, you direct it, but get a bunch of people who are professional trained actors and let them do all the acting. And then you know, all of a sudden, boom! It's this. It would be this like perfect thing, possibly. But this is getting me in a real heady space about like the arbitrary nature of what we find as valuable in film. Because what we have problem with the dialogue is it's stilted and it's unnatural and it doesn't seem like humans would say these things. Right. But <laughs> why does that? Why is that what we want from film? Thank you. <laughs> oh my god! I know I've talked about this to you guys a lot outside of the podcast, but for the love of God, films are subjective, and and films that get popular, almost anything that gets popular, it's this group of people who share feelings about it, and suddenly everyone else is wrong. Mm -hmm. No! This is not objective! So, you know, if I'm going to put on The Phantom Menace and pour a drink and just smile and laugh at this cool action movie all night, that doesn't make me wrong, you know? And you can sit there and talk about all the ways it doesn't make a traditional good film or, or, you know, and it's not art, it doesn't live up to Star Wars. Sure, whatever. Maybe you're even right, but it's irrelevant because what matters is that I had a good time watching it. End of sentence. 
and the nature of of uh, I lost the word crit critics criticism. The nature of criticism is to you know to measure something that's inherently subjective against some sort of objective scale, or you know to try to find some object objectivity to describe it with, to try to find something you can use to explain it in a relatable way. Because what. What's challenging to me now as I'm thinking about it is that the story of this film was conveyed to us. Mm -hmm. We're having the conversation about it now. Mm -hmm. Despite it defying all of the logical, arbitrary constructions yes. of what we've come to accept as what films do. Yeah. Right? We want to watch something that mimics real life but heightens it in such a way but not too much so that it's still believable. We can suspend our disbelief and we have a satisfying conclusion. And admittedly, these arbitrary rules are there for good reason. That they're, they're popular and successful for good reason. They work. But they aren't end-all, be-all. You know? They aren't completely set in stone, rock solid. And we see this happen sometimes with one or two aspects of certain films. You know, Tarantino's nonlinear storytelling. Uh, you know, where, where certain parts of his films take place before parts that we already saw or what have you. You know, he defies a pretty standard rule there, but it's become its own rule that you can tell these out-of-order stories. Plenty, a number of other filmmakers have done that, you know, Memento, right? But that was that's a standard, you know, don't confuse your audience. Well, no, I'm going to put too. this confusing thing in. And it works! People love it! Yeah. Waiting for Gato is a great example of that. Beckett's play is resists, it's, it's inertia. The whole thing is this anticipation with no payoff. The characters don't do anything. It's the play in which nothing happens twice. <laughs> that's Only the twice. But that's the thing. It's just it, it resists this tradition. I mean, the room might be the best postmodern film <laughs> ever. <laughs> God Ooh. damn it! I one eighty so hard on this. <laughs> like I'm getting whiplash that's, from it. That's what's beautiful about about art. We your your lenses have changed. The film has not changed. It's the same film. You're, you're right. And I don't know if... Would I have come to this having not seen Disaster Artist is really an interesting... I don't know. Or if we weren't podcasting about it right now. This epiphany... You, you, I mean, you heard it here first, folks. This is live epiphany. I, yeah, these conversations are only really happening because we're podcasting, right? We wouldn't have otherwise got together a couple times... I mean, we would have talked about as much it as we for can, sure. But yeah. to talk about it as thoroughly, you know. Yeah. Well, I don't think we would have watched The Room in the first place if we weren't pod Never mind, like, not talking about it. Like, I don't think we would have watched it. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah. Thank God for the podcast. In all, in all truth. <laughs> it's brought us a lot. I'm going to need to just sit over in this corner and <laughs> challenge all of my preconceived notions. And Oh, wait, Star Wars is tomorrow, so I'm going to have to reset real quick. Right. <laughs> so I can hate the thing that all Star Wars fans go, love. Go pick a bottle of liquor in the kitchen and finish it. <laughs> Cognac and coffee is wearing off, and I'm getting real existential. <laughs> it's like my uh, <laughs> philosophical tangent the other time. About salt shakers and their ability to perceive reality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to bring that back up. I don't actually remember that. I think I repressed it. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. What a moment that was. <laughs> I'm just I'm glad we're doing this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I am. It's, speaking of which, if you all have friends who have with a common interest, make something out of it. 
listeners, make a podcast or just make a, a, a scheduled thing to just come together and, and discuss because that was the original purpose of We Mumble was for us to share our favorite and not always favorite, just to share films with each other and then to get more out of the films by sharing our experiences. That's crazy. And by yeah. God, have we done that today? <laughs> and this is a film like we all decided. Like, it wasn't somebody's pick. Mm-hmm. It was like, hey, let's watch this thing together. Yeah, spurred on by current events. Jesus. Which won't be so current by the time this releases. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Pretty well, I think but, we're um, doing it Sunday. Yeah, Sunday. Oh, so yeah. This, this is going to be the, the most current movie. episode yeah. of Movie Mumble. Yeah. We're Fantastic. topical AF now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag disaster artist. <laughs> hashtag, hashtag. Hashtag, hashtag. <laughs> hashtag robot crab. <laughs> oh, that Tim's favorite the line in the whole line in the movie. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta do it in <laughs> his voice. Don't look at robot crab. He's shy. <laughs> uh, from the from the left to artist, beautiful. Man, that was that was beautiful. All of that. What a peak of a discussion. What a culmination. Is there anything else you all have been thinking about? Anything that's been on your minds? I, I mean, one of the things... How do we follow that up? You know? yeah, yeah, like, I, I, I sort of had um, one other... It was weird, because yeah. I had, at one point, I remember watching The Disaster Artist and, and sort of thinking about the podcast, and like, what, what's my contribution going to be? And one of the things I thought of it at some point, I was just like, this is my favorite movie. And I knew it wasn't going to actually be my favorite movie, but my favorite customer to have it yeah <laughs> to have it sort of just jump out at me and like and like hit me in so many places and and in so many ways you know and I think I don't I don't know if everybody sees it this way but for me there was a great part of it where it's just like like I am I am Tommy like this is this is this is my biography you know where and and not to say that like people have outright told me like oh you're not good enough you'll never make anything but but you know actions kind of can tend to speak louder than words or maybe I should say lack of actions like there's there, there are very few people in my life who have who mm. I, I've known that haven't been supportive, which which creates this 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 other thing. It's like if so many people you know tell me like, oh yeah, I really like your music, your music's good. Like like why isn't it happening for me? You know, and it's so there is this sense of like, you know, um, in a, in a more roundabout way, and almost in some ways more frustrating because you can't I can't point my finger at anybody and say, oh like this person is who shot me down and told me I was terrible. So it's because of them that I've lost all confidence, and, and it's like it's no, it's it's um, it's almost like in the Fountainhead when uh, I forget the, the the writer's name, but the one who does like the articles or whatever, and he decides that he is not going to mention Howard Rourke at all because like no press is is worse than bad press, and that's how he's going to try to bury Howard Rourke is by by never mentioning his name, and like I sometimes feel like it's almost that type type of situation, whereas like with Tommy, like he. He got so much criticism in it, and it kind of did beat down on him so many times. And you know, luckily he had Greg there to kind of be like, "No, like Pinky swore, we're gonna get through this. We're gonna encourage everybody." And it and it's a weird thing because like I feel like I have a lot of Gregs in my life, you know, people who are very supportive and encouraging. Yet somehow, like there's this sort of um, this invisible force that that I some kind of feel like, well, what what is it? Am I not doing and 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 I almost become my worst enemy where it's like 
you know, I end up being the one kind of telling myself, like, no, like, like Judd Apatow, like, I, I'm my own Judd Apatow, like, you are not going to make it, not in a million years, and not after that, like, this will never happen for you, and, and it was, it was so weird to kind of, to see that, and like I said, I mean, there was a, a sense of realization that, like, yeah, like, what, what are you bitching about, nobody has been turning you down, telling you you're terrible, like, where are you getting this from, but, but, but yeah, that it, I wonder if it's almost, and <laughs> maybe this is me feeling sorry for myself, but it's almost, worse that you you can't look at anyone else except yourself in the mirror and be like you know this this is your fault like this is the person who's who's beating you down this is this is the this is <laughs> you're tearing me apart tim you know it's, it's my it's myself you know and, like i'm my own lisa i'm my own you know producer and so that was one of the things that really for me really kind of like uh as i said earlier in that same way with uh, uh mr holland's opus you know where it's like you know, for a while that was like uh, one of the saddest movies to me because it was just like, oh god, I hate this. Like, I see this is the way my life could go. And watching the Disaster Artist, there was a bit of that. You know, like having this passion for wanting to do music for movies. And, and even in college, in my undergrad, there was a part where I was I was trying to make my own movie. I was, you know, and I wonder like how many of my friends who were there for that part who were gonna like look at this and be like, oh my god, that's Tim. Here's the guy running around trying to write and direct and act in his own film and get his friends together to work with him on it. And and looking back, it's like it, it kind of collapsed, not because the people working with me were, were shitty. I think it was just like well, some of the key actors had kind of left and everything, but it, it, it somehow just fell apart. And, and again, there's no one I can point to and blame and be like, oh, this is the person who fucked everything up. And and in that sense, too, maybe I'm also my own Tommy. Because there's a point where you see, you know, he's the one going off the rails, you know. And um, so it, 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 for me, it was, yeah, it was this really interesting mirror to look at and be like, okay, like, what what are the things Tommy's doing to kind of sabotage himself? And what are the things that I'm doing? And then what are the things that, because then the movie gets made. So what what is it, okay, pay attention to what it is that makes him push through and finish this thing and get it made so that, you know, again, it's not the fame that he wanted or expected, but it's some kind of fame and, you know, to push through to that, you know, and um, so that was, it was, it was a really interesting, weird experience for, for me. And and even, you know, like, uh, you know, (laughs) this is the time where I bring up the matrix, like, (laughs) like that definitely had this, this consciousness altering effect on me, you know, for various other reasons. But this, like this movie kind of did that to me too. It was just like, whoa, like, you know, I, I felt like Neo in front of the mirror, like poking his finger into the mirror, and it turns liquid and wobbles and crawls up his arm. Like, like I felt like that watching the Disaster Artist, and that that was actually that's probably why I said this is my favorite movie because I haven't felt that since I watched The Matrix for the first time, where I felt like my reality was being altered, and and I was looking at myself and the way I view the world and, and reality and my place in it, and I hadn't looked at it that way since The Matrix, and I was just like, shit, like okay like this you know and, and it fits with that whole idea we were talking about before about it, it being its own world and and its own um you know having its own rules and like it all makes sense because none of it makes sense but it all not makes sense together therefore it makes sense and it was just shit so that was my other big takeaway wow. <laughs> that was a, a beautiful excellent takeaway yeah yeah well done tim so I don't know where to go from there so we don't have to uh, we'll make a really hollywood movie hollywood movie yeah <laughs> But I don't have a bottomless bank account. <laughs> and that, I think that was the thing, too, that I kept thinking, like, oh, yeah, but, but, like, fuck, he has all this money. If I had all that money, I could do it. It was like, damn it. <laughs> I, 
I really liked that they showed Wiseau to be human and insecure. Mm. Yeah. Because even, I got the sense from... as he was distanced from everybody else, yeah. as this otherworldly figure, he still, was very well humanized. Yeah, and he, he almost gives up. And that's something that, like, with the mystique of that figure and the, the, all the things that surround the room, I never imagined he had that kind of emotional response to it. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to push ahead, it's just... And he really needed Greg. Mm-hmm. Like you said, like, it just was... I was... I don't want to sully what you just said, because you... No, it was awesome. I just was thinking that it was really cool to see Wiseau just kind of human in that way. He's so inhuman in so many ways, but to see him falter and want to give up and not... Maybe it's not worth it, mm-hmm. right? Like he yeah. said, and how many times has everybody felt like that? And yeah. it, for both of them, it partly just because of the nature of acting, but it touched on that the most disheartening can be not when there's some great obstacle or villain, but when nothing happens. That can be the toughest. Yeah. At least you had something to fight mm-hmm. against, right? Because yeah. every time you go into an audition, you know, someone shows up and crumbles up your skit, your script and punches you in the mouth so you can't speak your lines properly and then walks out and flips you the bird. It's the same guy every time. You know, you can say, fuck this guy. Yeah. <laughs> right? He's sabotaging me. Yeah. He's a problem, you know, and you have a thing to focus on to fix, mm-hmm. you know? Next time you, you, you bring your taser, and, right. you know, look for him quickly, you know? Yeah. But when you, when that doesn't happen, when you just keep going, bang your head against the wall, and just nothing. Nothing bad, nothing good. Mm-hmm. Just nothing changes. That is wearing and trying mm-hmm. and disheartening in a way that single bad events aren't. They can't be. And that came through not just in terms of the, oh yeah, you know, the standard story of all people who move to L.A. to be actors and just go through auditions forever and never get a bite, like, but in a, in a much broader sense in terms of just at a lifelong level. And for Tommy, he, in making his film, he thinks and hopes he's found a way around that monotony. And then we had, but of course it wasn't what he expected. (laughs) (laughs) I also thought of another way that I'm like Tommy. Mm -hmm. It's like hanging out with a bunch of 20-something-year-olds being like, yeah, you're the same. (laughs) 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 What year were you born? Same year you were born. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had that level of mystique where no one knew how old I actually was. I wish I hadn't told everyone when I moved out here, I'm from Rhode Island, where are you from? We can start right now. (laughs) Right, yeah. Everyone we meet, just the artist formerly known as Tim. Right. (laughs) Give everyone a different answer. Everyone a different state. You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From Rhode Island. From Connecticut. From Florida. Mm -hmm. From Arkansas. Yeah. Grew up in Washington. (laughs) (laughs) This was an excellent podcast. Mm -hmm. I think Uh, energy, energy really flowed. Mm -hmm. Conversations spread. It's been very nice. This was a great, ex- an exemplary movie mumble, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not disagree. Well, uh, I guess the big question then, what film is going to be the next one that spurs this passion in us the way the disaster artist did? Uh, like you said earlier, Tim, I, I haven't come out of that way feeling as fully impacted by a film. I haven't come out of a theater feeling as fully mm-hmm. impacted by a film as I have by the disaster artist in quite a while. And it's certainly shown through in our podcast tonight. 
Is there anything else anybody wants to bring up? Or uh, Tim's okay, pointing at a picture. Do we want to try to call the number on the billboard and see if anyone answers? I think that would be a great I way to, <laughs> to close it out. What do you think? Let's give it a shot. So can I? Someone? Oh shit! Here I am picking up my phone, and these two have already got it started out between them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Useless as always. Jeez, guys. Thanks. <laughs> I need to go to a rooftop with my best friend and complain about my nothing happening and no one no one appreciating me, and then make a movie about this podcast. <laughs> what do we call it? Mumble art. <laughs> Incoherent. Incoherent. Sorry. All right, are we ready? That's a great film. Film title. All right, there you go. Go ahead, hit send. Oh God, it's real. Why is it happening? Movie out, disaster artist, Golden Glove nomination. Who knows? Football on that carpet. We message. Very busy. We message. Okay. Yeah, of course it is. Oh well, <laughs> worth a shot. Can I just say? I almost am glad that that happened rather than like <laughs> yeah. actually. Well, what would we say? Like, right? I, what would yeah. We, what would we be say? like, is this Tommy? <laughs> I mean, it'd be no. kind of cool to be like, yeah, we're do- we saw disasters. We're doing a podcast about it. Anything you want to say to the viewers, to the listeners out there? Play football, see the movie. <laughs> we should. <laughs> we should have said we were gonna call it. And just had you do the voice. <laughs> yeah, uh, we should go in the other room. Well, I'll just uh, I'll cut it. Hollywood movie. <laughs> I'll cut it where the dial tone comes oh, up, and then no. you just <laughs> come in. No, no, even the real result. Uh, that was great. That yeah. was perfect. That was phenomenal. We're not going to get any, any copyright yeah. trouble. Yeah. That. I, no, not that we necessarily would. Right. Uh, <laughs> inherent <Sure>. paranoia. <laughs> I was so nervous. <laughs> right? Like, it was real. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh, my oh God, God, what, what are we going to do? What if fucking Franco answers? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I think that's actually a really great way to end the podcast. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for a nice... Uh, oh, well, Joel just went Joel gasp. Listen. What if, like, the end of the podcast is just leave a message to beep, beep, and then it's into the music? <laughs> Like that's Wait, the what, end what? of our podcast is us uh, calling the number and then like it going says, dead. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, the, potentially, so, I'll I'll mess with it. Yeah. And see what, that'd be good. That'd be well, the other thing too is like I so mean, if there you're is that, hearing this section of the podcast, yeah. that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing about podcasts is saying you're going to edit something out and then, and then never not. doing it. Yeah. <laughs> best like for, from your perspective, Mister Editor, not so fun for us. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, as, as, the podcasts no, I listen to do it all the time. Weekly yeah. Planet, especially, I, I love it when they do that. Uh, well, thank you all very much for joining us for this special episode. Special episode. Movie Mumble. Movie and, uh, Mumble. Uh, I'm doing this thing now. All right. <laughs> doing this thing now. Uh, where's, my, where's my ridiculous gut and mouth scene? And the podcast, that's what you're going to hear. And it's like, bang, clatter. <laughs> and then it's, it's going to be the end credits music from the room. And that's going to be the podcast. Thank you all for listening. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying it again. I saw Tim get ready to say the same thing. Uh, uh, thank you all very much for listening. We hope you'll continue to listen to Movie Mumble. And uh, I don't think we have any other special episodes. Special episodes. Lined up after this one offhand. So mm. you'll <clears> probably hear whatever our next regular episode or recap mm. is. Regular episode. Recap. Recap. 
<laughs> I think this is actually our last one that's going to be released for the year, right? Because I think oh, yes. for 2017, this will be, be our last one. Mm-hmm. And then we'll start fresh. First one of Cycle 2 in, in January, yep. which is James on Bond. Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm, Tim fun. did an amazing theme oh, song. Yes. I'm so oh, excited thank for you guys you. to hear it. Yes. Yeah. I forgot. I did that so long ago because we're so ahead on the, uh-huh. the ones we're recording. It's like, that's right. We haven't released For those of you who don't already know or haven't picked up, Tim wrote us a fantastic movie mumble theme, which is what you hear in the intro episode and in these special episodes. Special uh, episodes. And in the recaps. <laughs> Recap. Fuck you. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Oh, you're in my mind. <laughs> anyway, Preemptive so whispering. For each of the, the regular episodes, Tim reflavors his theme based on the film we watched. And it comes out phenomenally. For James Bond and for Godzilla in particular, just astounding. So please be sure to come by January and listen to that. Tim did a wonderful job. Yes, please. And Thank if, you. Uh, if that's good enough, maybe you'll stick around and listen to the rest of us chatter away. <laughs> uh, have a good night. Bye. Bye.